Hello, and welcome to the Network Collective Community Roundtable. In today's Community Roundtable show, we have Terrell Clute and Jed Casey on to chat about a number of networking topics. Uh, from Cloudflare to how Agile is impacting security, uh, this show should have a little bit for everybody. So uh, settle in, get something to eat, get something to drink, relax, and we'll be right back with today's episode. I want to take a moment to remind you about Network Collective membership. Network Collective members have access to exclusive content and a great Slack channel of other engaged network engineers uh, where we're chatting about things every day. There's lots of great advantages to being a member, and you can learn more for yourself by heading to thenetworkcollective.com slash join. So Daryl and Jed, thanks for coming back. Thanks for being on the show. It's good to see you both. What's going on? Busy. <laughs> Daryl is busy. What are you working on? What are you working on, Daryl? That's keeping you busy. Too many things. Too many things. <laughs> Jed is Jed is managing all the things SD WAN, but we will uh we'll get we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> Jed has uh Jed has some some frustrations with some of the things going on with SD WAN. <laughs> so I want to start today's show talking about Cloudflare. Now there's there's a couple reasons why I want to talk about it. One, it was obviously a significant outage that happened just recently with some sort of push that happened in their network that ended up causing things to go down. I do also want to point out that it took about, I don't know, all of 30 seconds <laughs> for Karma to hit them after they pointed the finger so harshly at Verizon for not doing things <laughs> right. I thought that that was a little inappropriate. And I thought that that was, uh, I thought that, man, they better have a long string of doing everything absolutely right. And it took all of about, I don't know, like five or six days until they <laughs> blew up the internet themselves. So congratulations, Cloudflare, on, on showing that everybody makes mistakes. Okay, can we all agree that everybody makes mistakes? But I really want to talk about the outage, not because the outage itself was particularly interesting, although it managed to take down a big portion of the internet. I think that the interesting thing to me uh, centers around internet centralization and the idea that we keep seeing so many of our services consolidating and just to a few significant autonomous systems. And it makes these outages by any of these, these main providers or vendors. I'm not even sure what to call them at this point because they seem to offer so many different services, but it makes them more significant and impactful. So on a system like the internet that was designed to be decentralized and spread apart and resilient, are we heading in the right direction when all of our services, whether they're infrastructure as a service or software as a service or cloud or content delivery networks, like the, where are we seeing more and more of this stuff being centralized? What do you guys think? I don't think it's the right direction. I think that what we're seeing is, I mean, with the, the Cloudflare outage, especially the one where they push the bad um, firewall roll update, that roughly a third of the internet, probably over half of the most commonly visited sites were all inaccessible for that 30 minute duration. Um, and just highlights the, the fragility of a centralized system. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I, I remember seeing Cloudflare was going to take on, I think, NTP or something like that. They were adding yet another service of which they were going to sit at the center of. And and you have this thing happen, and then all this stuff goes down, right? So Cloudflare sits as a, you know, I I guess it's not their only thing they do anymore because they keep adding services, but they started out right sitting in front of your website. Yep. I'm going to protect your website from denial of service or whatever. They 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 have the big pipes; they're able to filter it and keep your website online when you get attacked, which is a great thing. 
it would be even better if there were 15 people who did it adequately. <laughs> but Cloudflare, I guess, was just so good at doing it that they became the de facto place to go. And now a ton of websites, not even, we're not just talking about big websites, just standard everyday websites have Cloudflare as their front end. And we saw them all go down. Yep. Major services. I mean, I, so I guess it's just, it's like, what about centralization? I guess it's an economic thing. It always comes back to money, right? It always comes back to this idea that uh, we want the best product at the cheapest price. So if someone's going to offer it for free or if someone's going to offer it for low cost, we'll use that regardless of the impact of the fact that everybody's running to that. Well, and, and Cloudflare isn't the first company in that space, right? I mean, you look at companies that came before that are still around. You have Akamai. Um, you have other CDN providers. You have Fastly as well. They're one of the, the newer ones, um, along with Cloudflare, um, more API-driven. You have a few other providers as well. And when those services started taking off, and even what really was the groundswell for Cloudflare was having the free tier plan. Um, and the it makes sense for certain applications. Um, so applying it towards a content-rich site, a lot of images, a lot of things that are repeatable that where you can distribute the those con that content to, in Cloudflare's case, 180 different pops around the world without having to take on all the infrastructure to do that yourself. There's a lot of benefit there from the business perspective, especially from a user's, for a user's perspective of being able to have fast download of the data. Um, but there's a balance there. I mean, the, the outage in this specific case affected not only front-end systems, but their back-end systems as well. So you couldn't make an API request to turn off routing through Cloudflare. Oh, I mean, it's a good point. So it wasn't just the fact that they couldn't deliver your site. It's that you couldn't tell them to stop sitting in the middle. Right. To make it better. And it's not just their backend systems. No. <laughs> There's a number of other third-party backend systems that have nothing to do with Cloudflare. Yeah. That were that were impacted by the fact that you couldn't get to their, get to their things. I mean, this, this just is reminiscent to me of like every time Amazon takes a hit. <laughs> and everyone goes, well, it was just one region. You should have built your app to be more resilient. And those people are right. You should have built your app to be more resilient. How do you do that with one service provider? <laughs> like it's Cloudflare. Like if their whole service fails, what do you got? That's the front end of your website. And there's a part of me that wonders, you know, everything in the industry is cyclical. And I wonder if this will eventually just reach a tipping point where, uh, you know, outages like this happen more frequently and people get tired of it. And then that's when they finally decided to re-architect re their apps differently. And go go decentralized. Again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I agree. We're very good at pendulums, uh, both, both within our industry and just as people. So I imagine that there is that swing, although it seems like the there are some pendulums that swing really, really quickly and some swing really, really slowly. And this centralization, decentralization one seems to be a really, really slow one. And I would concur with that. I mean, we started seeing centralization with um, search with Google um, in the late 90s, early aughts. And then we started to see centralization of um, content delivery onto Akamai in this, during the same time frame. And so you start seeing um, in the open source community um, where you have, you know, they run on IRC since the 80s. 
and they wanted to be able to reach out to these newer people that were newer individuals that were utilizing more modern services or technologies. And so instead of becoming reliant upon those, they started building other tooling. Uh, so you go back um, 10 or 15 years at this point, and you have uh, the um, what, what what became the GNU social platform. Um, and then there's been some iterations on that beyond that. And then in 2015 or 16, I believe, um, W3C um, came out with a standard for ActivityPub, which uh, Mastodon um, implemented, which the whole point behind that is just for decentralization, federation, uh, same principle that we built the internet upon with BGP and ASNs. Um, no one authority, no single authority, no way to just kill everything. So I, I think that what we're what we see is that there's almost like pendulums that are segregated, detached. So you have enterprises joining on to the decentralization bandwagon, and then you have the um, the open source community that in some respects is trying to stay decentralized, but you have other parts of that same community that are trying to centralize. You have services like GitHub or and SourceForge that are centralized repository hosting um, that have, or you have people that self-host. So it's just depends on what perspective and what view of the landscape you look at. There's, uh, there's an economy of scale right, that comes with centralization that I think a lot of people like. If I'm going to make something myself or do it myself, I'm only going to be able to do it so well, uh, especially if it's not my core competency. I'm going to be able to do X. So we'll, we'll take Network Collective, for example. Like we run a podcast and not for running a podcast, I have to run a website. Now I'm relatively competent running a website, but I'm definitely not as competent as the people who really know how to run websites. You know what I'm saying? Like, And so putting that in the hands of people who really know what they're doing gives me an advantage because they really know what they're doing until they don't. <laughs> and then I'm stuck in the same boat as everybody else uh, when they have some sort of service interruption or something something going down. I think I see a lot of the... I'm trying to think of a really nice way to put it without sounding like I'm, I'm pointing a finger at them. It's not that way, but it's the internet old timers. It's the people who were around when decentralization was a, was a primary component who are pushing back against this idea of centralization really, really strongly. They're looking at these things and they go, wait a minute, we should be we should be concerned about this. And I think the younger generation is looking at it and saying, that's really cool. Everything's all in one place. I can go get my services all from one spot. I don't have to like go searching for them and find some little niche mom and pop deployment of this one little thing, or I don't have to write it myself. That's really convenient. Again, until you know, a third of the internet goes down all in one 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 push <laughs> of, of a config, right? Like that's, that's significant. And I, th I think that, you know, like, I, I don't think that this is something that's going to go away, right? Like there's the economy of scale is something we've always looked at. And again, it's not just a technology problem. We talk about this as a societal thing too. How many things do you want is centralized power versus distributed power, centralized resources versus distributed resources. There are people who love to live in cities and there's people who love to live in the country, right? Like, like this is, this is a, this is a debate and something that like, um, there's friction in all kinds of areas of life. Jed, you were about to say something. I, I was going to say uh, along those same lines and sort of uh, against the, the pendulum statement, you know, what if this keeps happening and it 
basically eventually it just becomes the you know this is the new normal this is just how things are and you, you can't escape it sort of like you know how i don't think we'll ever have a major you know let's say a bgp upgrade you know internet wide because we're not going to be able to get everybody to agree to <laughs> do what needs to be done yeah i mean uh, some of it's just going to become the status quo mm. as we see with bgp security i agree with that like <laughs> we're a long ways off if someone comes <laughs> up with a good idea today we're still a long ways off from it being something that's viable just because of how wide and distributed the system became so many of these issues come back to just the way that it was designed <laughs> designed with absolute trust everyone can do yep. their own thing and then we just all join together and it, it makes it challenging so let's move on to the next topic jed jed as we were talking about you know, coming on and doing the show today, you you brought up an interesting topic, and it's around um, having some issues with managed SD WAN. And we talk about SD WAN kind of in in two particular flavors, right? There's the flavor that is I deploy it myself. I get to deal with all of the nonsense that comes from having to learn how to do it myself. <laughs> the decentralized model of SD WAN deployment, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'm taking having to learn all those lessons by myself and learn them over again. Or I can throw money at somebody and say, hey, give me your expertise and deploy it for me and manage it for me. Mm. Right. And so these are the kind of the two models. Now, you're involved with an organization who went down the path of doing managed SD-WAN. We've mm -hmm. talked about this before. And generally, it's been a, a pretty good experience, I believe. Yeah, for, for the most part. And the um, like, like in my specific case, the... Um, Going with the the MSP wasn't so much for uh, expertise, but more um, cost oriented because you know we we were running on ninety five percent T ones everywhere, so we were looking into provisioning new circuits, and, and we found a company that would do you know the SD WAN service as well as take care of provisioning the circuits all as one. That's actually a big piece of it. Absolutely. So we, that's <laughs> my company. Well, I would say my company, me and a couple of people within my company explored the idea of possibly doing MSP SD WAN just because it was coming, we knew it was coming, we knew people mm. would be buying it, and we knew that it was a, a big step up from mm. from having just to manage individual routers. I mean, we started getting into it, it's like, man, Circuit management, deployment, provisioning, <laughs> vendor management, like those things are challenging products. And billing. It has nothing to do with the technology. Mm -hmm. It's it's yeah. all process. And mm -hmm. ultimately, we looked at it and we said, do we really want to do that? <laughs> like, <laughs> that? That looks like a lot of things that we don't do today that we would have to skill up on. Or do we yeah. just want to help people do their deployments? And that's kind of where we landed. Absolutely. I mean, when you have hundreds of locations, the, the, the billing alone is a full-time job. Right. So. Absolutely. <laughs> and so so you guys pay one person, right? Like you mm. pay them and you say, you you do the WAN. Right. <laughs> like, you do the WAN. We'll work with you on making sure that it does what we need it to do, but mm. you do it. So so do you want to frame the challenge as you kind of stated it to me? Um, because I, I think it was an interesting, interesting discussion. Yeah. So as part of our contract, we remained, um, we maintained uh, administrative control over the whole thing where, you know, we can dig in and make configuration changes as necessary. And um, one of the things that we've run into recently is, you know, for, for the most part, it's smooth. It does, uh, like pretty much all networking equipment, it does, it covers the 80% very well. It's, you know, just the 20% that uh, <laughs> you have the problems with. Unfortunately, we all seem to live in the 20% more than we live in the right, right. Yeah. So the issue we ran into is with um, when we've encountered things that we can demonstrate as software bugs, where um, 
because the the MSP acts as the go between between us, the ultimate customer, and then the the software vendor. Uh, we've run into situations where we have to bring up an issue to the MSP, and then they have to bring it to the vendor, and frequently things are lost in translation. And then you know the vendor will come back to the MSP saying we need the specific information even if we've already provided that as the the customer and it's sort of just, uh, you know, that that's one negative aspect of the managed services approach that I think is not discussed very well is, you know, so you're you're having to prove yourself out twice. Exactly. Right. And so, I mean, I've, I've thought a lot about this because I'm, I'm emphatically (laughs) in that camp that if you can, you should build it yourself only Mm -hmm. because, because of some of the advantages you get. And, and I'm not against the idea of a third-party independent MSP mm-hmm. who's offering services, but I am like super, super skeptical of all of the regular ISPs who all of a sudden are touting SD-WAN as the best thing ever mm-hmm. when the biggest proponent or the biggest the biggest cause for going SD-WAN was losing your reliance on that particular vendor. <laughs> Not that you wanted to get rid of them necessarily, but it gave you leverage and it gave you the ability to use somebody else and it gave you flexibility. And now all of a sudden it's like I'm back in the same boat, like I'm mm-hmm. with that same vendor. And so there's really kind of like three flavors. There's the I build it myself. There's the independent MSP. And I know some people who work in that space and that's a great space. Like that that person who comes in as the trusted advisor helps you build it, but they they aren't tied to the which circuits you use and they don't really care. Mm-hmm. And then, then there's the managed fully managed from your ISP version of it. But I think both of them are susceptible to this problem that you're talking about. And that is having to explain yourself twice. I mean, like justifying my conclusions once is already hard (laughs) enough, right? (laughs) Just thinking about the TAC calls. I've been on a lot of TAC calls over the past few weeks, uh, specifically around SD-WAN, very (laughs) relevant for this conversation. I've been on a lot of TAC calls the past few weeks and, and having to prove out what I know to be true mm-hmm. is already a frustrating experience. Like I, <laughs> once your experience is kind of like, can't you just believe me? <laughs> like, <I> know, <laughs> right. Here, here it is. Here's the evidence. And so you got to go through the eight <laughs> steps, but then having to do that again, would just like make my head explode. It would be mm-hmm. so frustrating if that was a common occurrence. Now I'm hoping for your sake that this isn't something you're doing like on the regular, <laughs> like you're not finding bugs that often that you're having to do this. Please. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but yeah, that could be. Um, but I I guess the other side of this is I really think you know I guess the perfect world version of this is that your MSP should be owning this, right? That's right. what you're paying them for. It's like, hey, I came to you. You can't fix it. You own mm-hmm. it from here. Right, and that's um, part of that too. Might be a matter of uh, I guess I'll just say a technical level. In other words, I think as as a from the MSP's point of view, I think they're generally not expecting their their customers to be able to uh, come back with certain details and knowledge to to unveil specific problems. And um, so maybe they're just you know not even prepared for something like that to to happen. I guess that's true, and I think that I, maybe just because of the circle that we build, and I think about mm-hmm. the people that I talk to regularly regularly here on Network Collective. And I guess it's probably not an average sampling of each other. Right, right. Like, like this is this is not your average group of people who 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 are just out there doing the regular practitioner thing. And so there's like there's space for that MSP to be the expert, right, 
I imagine it's somewhat intimidating when they walk into a shop with someone like Jed or someone like Daryl and be like, oh, hold on a second. <laughs> like, like we actually have to answer some difficult questions here. A, because they know what they're doing and B, because they don't live in the 80%. They understand what the other 20% can do mm -hmm. and they're going to find some weird stuff. So I, I, in understanding their perspective, but I think that's the gamble they're taking, right? Like I feel a little bit of sympathy for them. I understand their position, <laughs> but I don't feel a whole lot of sympathy because they're making a whole lot of money living right. in that trusted <laughs> advisor, uh, managed services position. And they should be responsible for hmm. for fixing those things. And I think that they should take a, a bigger role in doing that. Uh, man, like that's <laughs> I think I, I, I think I'm I mentioned this in the Slack earlier today. I think I am up to six unique unknown bugs in this deployment that I'm doing. So hmm. I like I have found bugs that were not reported to TAC before six times in one deployment. And you expect that it's a newer technology. It's a somewhat emerging technology. Mm -hmm. I'm specifically working with some cutting edge stuff within that technology. So like I'm expecting to find some of this, but I'm just getting, I'm just thinking if I had to go through that process twice for every single one of these bugs <laughs> that I found uh, and not, and none of that is mentioning all of the bugs I found that were already known that I just didn't know about that. I ran headfirst right into, you know, like a freight train, <laughs> like, Oh, look at that. And tax like, Oh yeah, by the way, can't do that. Go check out this page here <laughs> or whatever, you know, it's like, Oh, okay. Uh, so like I, I could definitely see that frustration. It's just not an angle I thought of. I thought about, I always think about the MSP question or the managed provider question for SD Wayne was about either economics, the cost, or it's about, I don't have the skill or resources to do it myself, or, uh, I want to focus on other things, right? It's just a value problem, mm -hmm. but this mm -hmm. is another interesting component. I'm part of the equation. I think it's something we should be talking about. Yeah, and oh, one go of the ahead. You had the, something to add? Yeah, one of the things with the, the cost perspective, the cutting cost alone from the capital or operational expenditure aspect doesn't necessarily cover the whole picture. You have to make sure you're accounting for everything too, because in Jed's case, he's spending this time debugging this issue and then having to talk to the vendor, his direct vendor, and the the software provider as well. So that's lost time that's not accounted for mm. in the original calculation of cost savings. I, that's Very good point. <laughs> and cost savings, especially when you start getting the soft costs, can it really be, not to say that Jed's time is a soft cost, but <laughs> <laughs> the soft cost, right? The, the, you know, the things that are really hard to calculate that aren't, you know, black and white. So, you know, you say, I know I'm going to spend this much time per circuit managing just the billing, the whatever. That's definitely, it's going to be there. But then you get into stuff like troubleshooting, expertise. Those things are a lot less tangible. They're a lot harder to put mm -hmm. a number on, um, but they tend to be the things that, be that, that become time sinks. They become the things where you go, okay, I have one of my best engineers who just spent a week, right? <laughs> one fifty-second of their year, right? Working on this thing that was not factored into the equation at all. And when you do that and you look at their salary for that time and what was going on with that, and it's like, well, like all of a sudden that could shift it just, just in that one thing. And if that was two or three times a year, all of a sudden it could shift the whole equation. And that's just one person, right? And you're talking about hundreds of sites. I imagine that's a really reasonable thing to assume would happen with hundreds of sites. Like, like it's absolutely like there's just lots of little nuanced things that are going to mm -hmm. happen that maybe your MSP, who is the expert for the non-experts, is not going to be the experts. <laughs> Just the way it works. Yeah, I think the the last topic I want to talk about today, complete shift, no segue to this at all. Very very awkward transition. Is 
and again, Jed, Jed is like the king of topics for the show. He brought this one too. <laughs> is is the idea of of is agile DevOps, net DevOps. I can't think of any other terms with ops after it that I could name right off the top of my but you could just fill in the blank. <laughs> fill in the blank ops. Are these processes kind of undermining security? So we think about you know traditional development, we talk about ITIL, which is you know like a four-letter word, both literally and practically. <laughs> uh, we talk about these processes and this idea that you know you should have peer review of, of, of the code you're releasing, that you should have lots of people looking at it, that it should be well tested and reviewed before it goes out. And then we have the other side of that, which is get stuff out reasonably and quickly. Now, obviously, I am painting with a very, very broad brushstroke. So I know that I'm <laughs> going to have both sides of this equation with people mad at me after this. But <laughs> generally speaking, get code out the door quickly, break things if necessary, fix them in revisions, right? From that, from an agile perspective of doing things, making those little chunks of work, getting them out as quickly as possible. And so when security is a big picture item, something that is broadly implemented on a system, does agile affect that? What do you guys think? So from my perspective, I don't think that it, that agile in itself necessarily affects that. I think that the same issue we had with ITIL and the same issue we are having now in the, the DevOps type movements is you have a few good use cases that tout the benefits of this new way of working, the new um, or the, the new processes, or, and they're very deeply intertwined in the company's culture. And then you get all these people that just jump on the bandwagon and they're like, oh wait, this doesn't work for us because they don't change their processes. They don't intertwine it into their culture. It doesn't become the culture. Um, you can't just take something that worked well for one person and say, do this exactly like this without all the details and all the cultural learnings that came with it and say, just apply this and it's going to work. There's a learning process in and of itself for implementing those before you can even start really applying it and getting the benefit of it in your own organization. So you're saying that, that there's DevOps and then there's real DevOps, the people who are, <laughs> who are really doing it, the people who are trying. And, and this is, this is true. I mean, like we see this all the time. You talk about management trends, you talk about, you know, whatever trend, uh, all of a sudden it hits some magazine somewhere or <laughs> some blog somewhere, <laughs> some executive walks in and says, we're going to do this. And I want to be doing this in six months. And there's no fundamental shift. It's literally just, I'll give you money, go make it happen. And that's, I agree with you. It's a mindset. It's not, it's a mindset and a process. It's not a technology thing. And just like we were mentioning with uh, SD-WAN and, and the, uh, um, the, the, you know, there, there's soft costs associated with this as well. And I think people tend to uh, forget how much soft costs are associated with security in itself. I mean, security takes time, security takes money, whether you're actually, you know, well, it's either time or money. So really. bring it, bringing it full circle I, I, to back to security, right? So uh, Daryl brought up some points about the shift and I think he was getting somewhere. Uh, and, and I'm going to jump in here with just this thought. And that is we didn't care before, right? Evidence said we didn't care before. 
show me somewhere where we can look at code that was written under, you know, some waterfall management of deployment where security was at the forefront mm. and actually effective. I don't think we've gone backwards at all, right? I, I'm not saying we've necessarily gone forwards either, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I don't think we've gone backwards at all because it's pretty hard to go backwards when you haven't progressed all that much at all. Like security yeah. just has not been a focus of, of software development. We speak to it. I think there are certain specific places where security has been taken very seriously and those things have been managed well. And I imagine those things could move to an agile uh, style of deployment or development. And that would still continue to be that way, much to Daryl's point, because security is ingrained in the culture, not because of the method they use to manage the work that they have to do. It's because security is at the forefront of the discussion whenever they're talking about something. And when review is done, it's done with, is this secure? Like, that's one of the first questions they're answering. I'm assuming that's where you're going, Daryl. I'm sorry for stepping on. Oh, yeah. That, that was <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> right. So so this idea, I mean, and I, Daryl had an interesting point. Like, you know, there's, there's places where it absolutely makes sense to go this direction. I think there's a lot of us to, I think it really probably makes sense in a lot of places uh, just because of, of the benefits that I've seen. Um, and, and as I've explored it myself at like, okay, I, I can see where this would provide value, even in a lot of places where I think some traditional people would look at it and say, no, not really. But I do think that much of Daryl's point, it's not something you just flip a switch and do. It's going to be something that's a, a, a step by step process by process thing that you, you change the way you think about the work you do, you change the way that you implement the work that you do all with the same values that you had before you made that change. And if your value um, system just shifts in the wind, like with whatever trend is the most prevalent trend this week, there's no way that you're going to be able to keep up with things that matter if they aren't a core part of your operation. Yeah, precisely. I mean, when, when you, we go back uh, and look at the original um, talk from John Alspa and uh, Paul Hammond, I believe, um, at Velocity. The there was no mention of DevOps in that talk, um, but there was mention about how of what the process looked like, right? And security was clearly there, and I mean it was input from the, the business all the way through to feedback from the end users. Um, and everything in between was all part of that feedback loop. And a lot of organizations, a lot of people don't have that full feedback loop and communication to be able to implement that just going. They have to actually make cultural shift to be able to, to um, be successful in moving forward towards uh, being able to adopt some some of these things. Well, and I think that's also I think that's that gap is uh, is historically been there. We have our technology silos. We have the things that we do, and I think that you know when you try to shoehorn new processes into old silos, they're going to fall down exactly the way you would expect them to fall down. And uh, what made me think of this whole thing was how uh, as more and more uh, 
network engineers begin to uh, journey into network automation, uh, I would imagine uh, the, the wave will be coming now that Cisco has made it official, officially part of their curriculum as well. I, I feel like um, we are in a position to um, maybe start to bring about some more, you know, security or security oriented discussions into this, whereas maybe before it was just given a, a slight, you know, glance over before. That's interesting. I, I've definitely have seen the progression, um, having been doing this for quite some time now mm. where security wasn't thought of at all. Then security became an afterthought. Now security seems to be on the forefront of everybody's mind. So forget about code and agile and infrastructure as code and all that other stuff, just security in general, as it relates to our networks. Mm. Um, it's like the biggest, most booming industry. People are spending all kinds of money on products and tools because they're all of a sudden realizing that, wait a minute, this matters. <laughs> Data is valuable and people want it and they will steal it. So how do we protect it? And, and people are spending all kinds of money doing it. So now the question is, do we make the jump from I'm throwing money at it to it becomes an integral part of what we do? Because really the tools are a band-aid. There's a lot of great tools that are out there, but the tools are a band-aid. If mm. our code and our equipment and our stuff was secure to begin with, we wouldn't need to put a bunch of stuff in the middle to stop the bad <laughs> things from coming in, right? If if the stuff was secure and well uh, well managed from that perspective to begin with. And just the reality is, is that we still have, as much as we don't like to admit it, the soft, chewy cent center and the hard exterior shell as the model for security. <laughs> it's getting better, but the way we're getting it better is that we're putting all kinds of things on the soft, chewy inner part to detect when things are happening, right? Like that, that's really the only difference. It's rather than uh, a firewall, I have firewall, firewall and malware detection and anomaly yeah, detection and, you know, and, like all these and, things. So, and implementing that in the middle of the network is not the best place to do it either. And so you have, you have, yes, security is coming more to the forefront of everybody's conversations, but you also have people talking about, okay, how do we evolve this? Do we go micro-segmentation? Do we go zero trust in the Google Beyond Corp um, model? Do we just keep, as you were saying, just keep bolting onto the Chewy Center and put more load on the network? And I, I am a firm believer that security is not the network's job. Like, it's yet another example of the network solving. I mean, so when we think about it at the core of the network, the job of the network is to get packets from A to B. Like yeah. that's where it started. Not to say that that can't uh, evolve and mature and change over time and the responsibilities of the network. Not only do we have to deliver packets A to B, but we have to be able to prioritize and drop things that aren't necessarily as important. That's more of a business decision, but that is absolutely needs to be implemented in the network because that's where the links live. But the security does not have to live in the middle. It doesn't have to. We put it there because it doesn't exist on the devices we're protecting. So what you're saying is uh, this email that I just got, I didn't really win a free vacation? You did not. <laughs> and and the prince who wants to give you lots of money, that's true. You definitely want to do that. <laughs> please don't. Please don't. I don't want to get sued. <laughs> no, no, no. So, yeah. So, I mean, I you know, I, again, we're talking about cultural problems. We solve it in the network because that's the cheapest, easiest place to say we can and we do. And it has the highest effect as quickly as possible. But if we'd done it right from the beginning. So if we had the cultural um, 
mindset. And a lot of this is out of our hands. Like, so when I say out of our hands, as you know, if you're working as an enterprise engineer, you don't determine how secure your operating system is. You don't determine how security your networking gear is. And the reality is it isn't just go look at the list of things that have been security violations <laughs> on all of that stuff over the course of just the past six months. And it will, it will scare you to death. How many things between privilege escalations and non-privileged access and it's like and it's everything including the things that are supposed to be protecting you by the way also subject usually they have the most <laughs> i don't know if that's true but i i want to say it is um it feels that way because it definitely is a much bigger deal when the product that's supposed to protect you is all of a sudden making you more vulnerable but the idea is we don't have a lot of control over that so that's why we solve it in the network and with these devices and appliances and all the things that we tack on. Uh, so really, maybe it's a call to action to the people who build the real infrastructure. But are they going to listen to me? No, I don't think so. So like we're going <laughs> to we're going to be stuck in this in this in this process in the middle or we're going to go even more decentralized all the way back to our beginning conversation and write our own, which <laughs> is probably not a great idea. Right. <laughs> because, well, yeah, going that decentralized is probably not a good idea. <laughs> right. Um. It's this it's this <laughs> spectrum, right, of how much yeah. power do I want to put in one person's hands and what's the value I get out of centralizing that. But uh, but it's uh, that, that's when we get into the conversation of open source making more sense than <laughs> and, and that I think is going to have to be another show. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I think this is, a, this is a good place to wrap it up. Thanks again to uh, Daryl and Jed for coming on and chatting with me today. Before we run, I want to give them both an opportunity to share where you might find them on the interwebs. Daryl, we'll start with you. Where can people find you? Uh, so I occasionally blog at uh, DarylClute.net. I love how um, everyone says they occasionally blog. I am just as guilty <laughs> as everybody else. I When I say occasionally blog, that might be once a year at this point because Network Collective has <laughs> just dominated my time. But yeah, okay, I'm with you. Occasionally blog. DarylClute.net, yep. you said? Yeah. Okay. Um, Twitter at DarylClute and also on the Mastodon Network, Daryl at Fostodon.org. Okay, excellent. Jed, how about you? Where can people find you? Uh, I too have fallen into the uh, occasional blog at uh, knickercube.com, um, LinkedIn at Jed Casey, and Twitter at wax underscore tracks. I like how there's no tie between any of them. Daryl's real consistent. <laughs> you can find him by looking up his name. You have you have wax tracks, and you have <laughs> Neckercube, and I have no idea where any of them came from. That's probably a story for another day. If you're looking to talk with me. I'm at BC Jordan on Twitter. I less than occasionally blog at jordanmartin.net. Uh, I'm also on all of the social media places. So you can find me on LinkedIn. You can just search my name. Uh, you can find me on uh, Facebook if you really want to, but that's not really a networking place. <laughs> it does on occasion, but that's there. As for the show, if you like this episode, if you like uh, geeking out about networking, we have lots of shows at thenetworklife.com. Lots of uh, great topics and conversations much like this one. So you can head there and check those out. If you'd like to chat with us, we also are on social media uh, from a show perspective. So we're at Net Collective PC on Twitter. We're also on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you really want to talk with us on Facebook, we'll do it there too. That's fine. Where we go where you are. Also just want to bring up Network Collective membership again. 
I think both of you are members. <laughs> if I remember correctly, <laughs> both of you are in as, as members. So that's that's awesome. This might actually be the first all-member show. That's kind of cool. <laughs> I didn't think about that when I was inviting people. I was just, hey, who, who would be cool to talk with? So uh, lots of great benefits for membership. Slack is uh, pretty incredible. Uh, lots of good, uh, unique content that's available only to our members. You can check that out at thenetworkcollective.com com slash join i lost my track there the network collective.com slash join that's where you want to go all right and uh we're going to be closing it out soon but if you haven't yet there's one last opportunity to go check out and take our network collective listener survey it helps us make decisions about some of the things we're looking to do as we move forward how we structure some of our content we really want to produce stuff that's valuable to you so if you want your voice to be heard you can just go to our website the network collective.com there's a banner at the top you click it and fill it out so thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for uh, participating with us as we uh, continue to, to build Network Collective. And we will see you next time. <laughs>